Today's reading is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. I want to introduce uh, Tom Schrader. He is going to be preaching for us this morning. Frank is, for whatever reason, in Iowa. Um, he is there leading a marriage retreat there. Um, and uh, we have Tom. He, he is the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church. And East Valley is one of the churches that merged together to become Redemption Church about six or seven years ago. And uh, he is, uh, basically, Frank is channeling Tom. So you get like a, a worse version of Tom every Sunday morning. So now we get to get the real thing. So let's welcome Tom. We're so glad he's here. Okay. Yeah. I made it. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. First things first, bear down. How about that? Yeah, let's get that out of the way. So that's pretty exciting. Glad you are here. Cody mentioned... This doesn't seem right. I'm here and Frank's in Iowa. I don't know. He's got, he texted me the other day when he arrived at the camp and it was nine degrees, which sounds a little chilly to me. They've had a great winter and uh, Frank has got a place where he goes and teaches. He absolutely loves it here. But I'm convinced the reason he's not here is he read ahead and saw this passage. <laughs> and he said, I don't want to be here for that. So uh, uh, we miss him always, and it's a privilege for me uh, to be with you. When you came in, you got your hand out. My outline is on the other side. So I know. I left room for some creativity on your part. Uh, you listened to the, hopefully, listen to the passage as it was being read. It is uh, a passage that, that comes at kind of a strategic time when, uh, in the history of the church. When you write history, there are probably many ways to write it, but there are at least two kind of classic ways. One is to drop down and a lot of detail a lot of information. And the other is a, kind of a flyover, drop down, come back out, flyover, drop down. So like in my library at home, I have volumes from one author on the Civil War. 
And then there's a book, if I remember, Battle Cry of Freedom is the name of it, by James McPherson. It's about 750 pages. If you're interested in the Civil War, it's a great way to get started. And then I have like a little 200-page concise history of the Civil War. The way Luke writes the book of Acts is he's flying over, dropping down, giving us a view, and at this point, we're five chapters into this, at this point, we start to get a rhythm. God moves, establishes the church, the church grows, uh, Peter reaches out, delivers a sermon, 3,000 people are saved, the church comes together and begins to live in community as a church, and they teach, and there's community, and the, the world sees it, some are attracted to it, all are amazed by it. And, and then the church reaches out again, and we're told now, I think it's what Acts, I think I wrote it down, Acts 4-4, four, four, roughly. By then we're told there's 5,000 people at the church. Now we believe, can't nail it down, that the church might be at this point in Acts 6 as many as 20,000 people. And as you can imagine, and this becomes the gist of the problem today, there's some organizational problems. The way I prepare a lesson is I will uh, read the text and make what are, to me, obvious observations. And then I'll read two or three or four other versions, a paraphrase. And then I'll read commentaries. And to just give you a flavor on where the commentaries go, let me give you the title of three of them. The Church First Deacons, The First Office Bears, Spiritual Organization. So, so if you're here uh, and you're looking at this, you're going, oh, this is a lot of inside baseball. This is a lot of inside church stuff. Well, hopefully I can help you see why that's important to you. It's church organization and it's structure, but you fit in that church. The church is designed for each and every person to be involved using their gift. So we'll talk about that. The fourth title that I didn't mention is called Handling Dissension. There's a problem that comes and one of the things that's fascinating to me, as the church is flourishing, in comes the problem. Let me hit the pause button there and come back into your life. Some of your biggest tests are going to come in the midst of prosperity, not just adversity. If I say to you, uh, let's take a second and imagine that God is going to test you today. Just, just let something come into your mind. Well, I can't read minds, but I'm pretty sure it was stuff like an economic problem, a relational problem, a health problem. It had problem to it. 
The real test often for us is not adversity, but prosperity. Thomas Carlyle says, for every 100 people who can pass the test of adversity, there's only one who can pass the test of prosperity. That's what's happening here in the church. Let me read to you from Ray Stedman. He says, this is a story of dissension. The attempt of the enemy's part to divide the church by envy and misunderstanding. One of the favored tricks of the devil is to create dissension among the people of God. I think there's some great application to all places and all times, but really where we are today. So let's look at the text. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in numbers, here's the problem. A complaint arose in the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So there's two groups of people. You understand, I assume, that that early church was almost exclusively Jewish. And within that Jewish community, there were Jews there in Jerusalem, Palestine. They spoke Aramaic. They would say they had ancestral heritage, no foreigners among them. And then there were Jews from foreign countries. If you remember Frank leading us through this book, at the time of Pentecost, there were pilgrims from all over. Typically, the size of Jerusalem would be something like 125, 150,000 people. And it would swell at Pentecost to over a million. I'd love to try to get my arms around it. So think of Tempe. Think of the population of Tempe. Now think of Sun Devil Stadium, the revamped Sun Devil Stadium. It holds 56,000, I think it's 270 people. Imagine it full. That would take quite an imagination. But imagine it, <laughs> imagine it full. Imagine it full, empty, full, empty, full, empty, 15 times. And imagine all of those people dumped into Tempe without hotels, no Chick-fil-A, no P.F. Chang's, no pay, Payway, nothing there. That's what's going on. Well, those Hellenistic, Arab-speaking Jews, they are still in the city. They've, they've come into the church. And now you have really, and it doesn't, it doesn't say what the motive is, but there's dissension between these two groups. Ray Stedman, and I think he takes a little bit of liberty here. He says, I don't know if it's deliberate. It's difficult to determine, but not very likely. I wrote down, I think it's inevitable. You put two groups together with a dominant culture and a subdominant culture, and the dominant culture is going to dominate. 
it's going to rule. It, just, it has the authority. It has the power. You live at a time with hurting, marginalized people all around you. You're collecting diapers and umbrellas and strollers for them. Almost every week from this platform, you'll hear about foster care and adoption and refugees and immigration. We live in a very diverse and becoming even more diverse, therefore, I think, more tension-filled culture. A friend of mine was at Costco the other day, and I was talking to him, and he said he heard that he could count seven languages other than English. This is on a trip to Costco. You have diversity, racial, cultural diversity all around you. And all my, I, 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 I keep trying to back off from saying inevitably, but almost inevitably, that's going to produce tension. And that's what happened in this early church. Now, I want to take a side trip, and I think it's worthwhile. Stedman writes this. Its expression, so this tension, was that of murmuring. And murmuring is always deadly. I'm doing this, by the way. Here's my intention, so it's not so subtle. I'm talking to you all. I don't, I don't have any reason other than human nature tells me I'm sure this is part of your nature. Murmuring is always wrong. These Greek-speaking Christians began to complain, but they didn't complain to those in authority or responsibility. They complained to themselves. With a murmuring attitude, it spread the discontent throughout the whole body. This is still the devil's favorite trick to divide Christians, to divide churches. You murmur when you complain about a problem, but not to the one who can do something about it. When you complain to other people who perhaps are involved, but are not in a position to do much about it. That's murmuring. As I said, it's always deadly. Murmuring brought the judgment of God upon the children of Israel in the wilderness. Murmuring is always the mark of quarrelsome, discontented, unhappy spirit. I, I walked in here today and get here a little early. I uh, am in a kind of a rhythm right now where I'm teaching almost, almost every Sunday morning somewhere. And if I can physically do it, I love it. And I, I get there early, and I like to watch the church come to life. I, I get here early, and I like to, to watch the nurseries, and I try to go by and say hi to every one of the nursery workers, and I'll pop over and look at the coffee, and there's ushers there, looking like the Maytag repairman, waiting for somebody to come because nobody's going to show up at 8.30. But they're there, and, and the band is just finishing, and the lights are coming on. And, and to me, it's very exciting. 
you can, and, and God's doing something sweet here, it feels like to me. You can kill it like that. Just start complaining to people who can't fix it. Leave here. Go down. Have a little breakfast, brunch. Start talking about how you didn't like and then just line list it. And it can destroy the church. And, and that's what's happening here. Let me, let me just finish. It's a long quote. But let me just finish, Stedman. This was the attack, the enemy, trying to destroy the effectiveness of the early church. Somehow the apostles heard of the murmuring, and it wasn't very long until you hear these rumors that go around. And when they heard them, they acted. Look what's happening in the book of Acts in this case. The church is growing, it's prospering, it's affecting the world. People are coming to Christ, they're being fed, they're living in community, they're exchanging goods, they're loving one another, they're changing the world around them. But once the church turned inward on itself, it began to devour itself. It made itself less effective to the world. Uh, I have this autoimmune disease, and what they tell me is the bad cells eat the good cells. I, I, that's all the explanation. I don't need any. I don't need to understand it. That's what they tell me. But here's what I know. That's really dangerous. Starts to affect the organs starts to affect the joints, starts to affect the whole body. If the church turns inward on itself, it'll kill the mission you have. Just as you're watching announcements, there's a, a meeting on incarnational living, gospel in the marketplace. We're going out. We're nurturing in. And, and the apostles get it. They understand it. They want to stop it. So somehow they found out, here's the problem. The Hellenistic Jews are saying their widows are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. We see in the Old Testament that the nation of Israel would take care of the widows that there was a distribution of food there. And that practice was carried over into the early church. So there's distribution of food that's going out to the needy widows. And the Hellenistic Jews are saying, we're not getting a fair shake in this deal. Doesn't say what that was. Doesn't say why they thought it. Just says this is what's going on. And the disciples hear about it in verse 2. And they summon the congregation of the disciples. And they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, there's a big point right off the bat. It would be easy to think 
these guys were saying, I'm too good to serve tables. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, God's called us to pray and to preach. And I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say, and I think implied in that, he's called some of you to serve tables. In, in our context, there's these things called spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a special enablement that's given to every person who believes. So in 15 minutes or so, we're going to take communion. And we're going to say those of you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior are invited to join us in communion. If you're somebody who comes and takes communion, let me tell you something else you've received. Not just salvation and forgiveness, but a spiritual gift. Spiritual gift is a special enablement to perform a function in the body of Christ with ease and effectiveness. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is like the physical body. There's hands and feet and knees and hips and eyes and ears and nose. And because one part says, I, I, I'm an ear and not an eye, I'm not important, Paul says, no. Imagine if the, if the whole body was one eye. We'd see real good, but we couldn't move around very well. And the early church, I, I guess there's all sorts of things they could have done. I made a list of some. They could have just taken the complainers and thrown them out and split the church. They could have ignored them. They could have, and this sounds like a very clever strategy to me, they could have called a meeting and outvoted them. <clears throat> then who can complain? It's democratic, majority rules. They did something that to me seems extraordinarily odd. They said, you figure it out. Now, here's what we want you to do. We want you to find the right people. They gave them some parameters. I, I don't know that it's parameters for every office, because there aren't offices established. But, but look with me at the parameters they gave them. Verse 3, they selected seven men. Is that saying a woman can't hold an office in the church? Well, I'd love to dialogue with you about that, so email me. Here's my email, frankswitzer@gmail.org. <laughs> okay. okay. We know early, or later on in the book of Acts that we have the office of deaconess, but at this point, this is not the point of this conversation. I'm not trying to avoid it, though it works out pretty well for me. Uh, I'm just saying, this is what they said at this point. The second thing, and, and I think this is really important in our context, select seven men from among you. One of the things that I am 
so happy with at Redemption Church is we're raising up the majority of our own leaders. We, we don't do a, 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 a national search when we're looking for the next worship guy or teaching guy. I'm not, here you go, because anytime you say something like that, it sounds like you're condemning everybody that does. I, I don't want to do that. I'm just saying we're raising up our own guys, our own gals, people from within. The, the, the minute we go, oh, you know, first church of whatever has a really good youth guy, we'll take him. Well, we hurt that church and we diminish the opportunities for the people that are already in our church. The third thing that they had as a requirement is they were people of good reputation. You can look for yourself. It'd be a good study in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 3 are the qualifications of elder. Not quarrelsome, focused to one woman. The list is there. Every person in the church, not because they one day may be an elder, but every person in the church should aspire to be elder qualified. Good reputation, good character. The fourth thing is they have wisdom. Wisdom is pretty rare. They can combine biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, with practical, I wrote down, common sense. Here's one thing I know in 2017. Common sense is not very common. Wisdom, wisdom is that, that rare ability to see past all the fog and all the deceit and all the clutter. Don't you have it around you? All these voices coming at you, all of equal volume, but not all equally valuable. F find these guys. Here's our mission. We want to continue to pray. Sandy and I are working through. Uh, she is not here, so I'll tell it more fully than I will next hour because she's here. Um, but we're trying every night to come together and discuss something we've read that day and then pray. Now, that sounds so spiritual, and, and it sounds so good, and it is. It's pretty hard to do, and I don't know why. We're working through a devotional now, and this guy made a point the other day. It's 40 days of Lent. It's on prayer. And he made a point the other day that prayer widens your love and helps you realize God's love for those you're praying for. I, I thought that, I guess that's a no-brainer. 
But man, that was one of those that I underlined and marked and said, I got to steal that baby. That's really good. They said, we're going out to be praying for people. Here's what you two sets of conflicting people ought to do. Why don't you start praying for one another? You'll start to understand. You'll start to see one another and understand their view. So they get together, verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose seven men. We know a little bit about the first two. Luke says, Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. You're going to see him again uh, next, next week. And then Philip, uh, we see him in the book of Acts in the 8th chapter. He's an evangelist. We don't know anything about 3, 4, 5, 6. And of Nicholas, we know he's from Antioch, and he'd been converted to Judaism. Now, lost in that, and it would be with me too if I didn't study, so I don't expect you to go, oh, this is obvious. All seven of these guys were Greeks. Now, think about that. The dominant ruling culture didn't say, well, let's get seven guys and we'll get two Greeks, five Jews, four and three, three and one. Here's what, here's what Ray Stedman writes. You say you don't trust us, but we trust you. Figure it out. And they give all the power and all the authority to the minority diminished group. I don't know if I've ever heard of anything like that. I don't want it to say too much, but I sure don't want it to say too little. It certainly is impressive. I've never been in a situation where the people with the authority say, here, you fix it, we trust you. But see, these people that they serve, that they chose were godly men with a good reputation. We're talking about character, not reputation. Reputation is what I think about you, what you think about me. Character is who you really are. I, I met with a young man the other day, and his church is a little bit like this church. It's exploding. And he's trying to figure out governance and structure. And, and he's got models. We got sweet and low and sugar containers spread out on the table. And we got org charts. And I said, here's the bottom line. You don't want to be anti-biblical. But there's not that much there. If you've got a great structure and bad people, it's not going to work. If you've got a bad structure and good people, it will work. And they said, the dominant culture said, we trust you. And look at the result. Verse 7, the word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem. 
And a great many of the priests, that is the religious, were beginning to believe. So that's almost, I guess, more of a history lesson. I gave two or three takeaways, and then we'll celebrate communion. Number one, in the church, there's a division of responsibility. I want you to find and use your spiritual gift. God has given Redemption Arcadia all of the firepower it needs. At one time uh, during a, a fundraising campaign, I said, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we have all the money we need. The bad news is it's in your pocket. Okay. okay. Here it is with spiritual gifts. The good news is we got all the spiritual gifts we need. It's not bad news, but the reality is it's in your pocket. And I want you to use your spiritual gift if you don't. And I'm told, I'm more than selfish, but a little bit selfish in that. Because if you don't, we function out of balance. Now, that's going to produce tension because you're always going to look at the church. This is something I learned early on. You're always going to look at the church through the lens of your spiritual gift. So if you're a Bible guy or gal, you're going to go, teach the word, teach the word, teach the word, teach the word. We don't teach enough. If you're a foster care adoption refugee kind of person, you're going to say, love the people, love the people, love the people. We don't love the people enough. And that's going to produce all of this kind of, hey, we don't quite have it right, but that's okay. That's just us living in the midst of this. So there's a division of responsibility. There's a plurality of leadership. I get wanting to have one leader. James Boyce uses this illustration. He said, I have in my office a sign somebody gave me years ago. God so loved the world, he didn't send a committee. Well, I understand that, and I get what it means. And one guy making all the... I get it. It's more efficient. It's faster. But it's not how God designed things. And while we need people who are vocationally skilled, we need people who have the right character. We're attracted to that gal that can put together an org chart, and she can administrate and it's slick, and it's organized, and it's driven, and it's sharp. That's great, but if she doesn't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, we're in real serious trouble. And God wants us to continue to minister to the people who are outside this body. Not, not to ignore the people inside, but we need to do both. And you're called into that. And it's the responsibility of the leadership to articulate that vision and lay down a path for you to give you an on-ramp to figure out how to get involved. And some of you at this moment are probably thinking, hey, they're not doing that very well. Okay, I don't know. 
I, I got no horse in this race. I don't know about Arcadia. I'm a big picture. I don't know. I, I'll tell you this. If they aren't, then you need to go to Mr. Schwitzer or Mr. Wheeler or Mr. Moreland or, her, or Cody or whoever it is and say, how can I be part of this solution? You don't go out and you don't start murmur, 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 murmur. That's not the answer. Well, God has tried to expand this church. And there's been persecution. Uh, and there is now internal strife. We saw last couple weeks ago through sin and now through dissension. But now this Stephen we read about is going to become the first martyr of the church. I think one of the old preachers, and you can tell it's an old Baptist guy, said, the devil likes to destroy the church more from the termites within than the woodpeckers without. <laughs> well, it's going to the woodpeckers without here pretty quickly. For us, and I saw those announcements for Good Friday and Easter, it's just a great time of the year. But one of the things I love about redemption is every Sunday we stop and remember the cross. We do that through communion. We invite every one of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to come, take the elements. There's stations on both sides here in the front. Take the element as your heart is ready and prepared. Okay, and then the band will come and Cody and the team will close our time of worshiping together. Let me pray as you prepare for communion. Father, thank you for these awesome and amazing truths. Those are uh, great lessons for us. We begin to see a, a path of, of human nature, God, and we pray that we don't act naturally, but supernaturally. God, fill us with your spirit. Use us in ways beyond anything we can imagine. We pray that to you in Christ's name. Amen.